Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. How wonderful on a Friday night to see you all here. So, just in case you can't tell them apart, over there <laughs> we have Susie, and in the middle we have Heather. And um, yes. I'm a writer and a reader, but tonight I'm a talker and a listener, and I'm delighted to welcome you all here for this session, which is about bringing RBG to life. I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathered on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay our respects to Elders past and present and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here tonight. And I'm just going to remind us all that while we talk about literature, today is the sixth anniversary of us being given the Uluru Statement, which is, whatever your politics, a very beautiful piece of writing. So I just want to acknowledge that too. So, let me introduce you to these two wonderful human beings. Susie Miller was born in Melbourne, but now lives between London and Sydney. She is, as you know, a playwright, a screenwriter and a librettist. She's drawn to complex stories and she often explores injustice. In fact, she won the Australian Writers Guild Kit Denton Fellowship for Writing with Courage in 2008. It's a good, good fellowship, that one, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, before entering the world of the theatre, though, Susie studied immunology and microbiology at Monash University. At that time, she worked at an Ud boot factory <laughs> on an assembly line. Susie, could you just tell us why you didn't oh, yes. stay in that place? Well, <laughs> there's one big reason is all my friends got promoted upstairs to sewing up koalas' bums. But I... <laughs> But I was stuck on the assembly line gluing the soles on Ugg boots, so I thought it's probably not a career for me. <laughs> so is that when you thought, ah, the law? Yeah, I think course. so. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bit of a union issue there as well. <laughs> so after graduating in law from the University of New South Wales, she worked as a human rights lawyer and an advocate for disadvantaged children and young people, while also at the same time studying playwriting at NIDA. Was that at the same time? Yeah. She's an underachiever. Um, so the two things meshed, the playwriting and the law, with Susie using storytelling to advocate more and more. Until finally, in 2010, she farewelled the legal profession and an invitation to be a magistrate to take up full-time playwriting. She moved to London with her young family to pursue theatre writing. She got herself a real job at last. <laughs> so, can I ask you just to hold that thought of Susie over there in London, and we're just going to have a take a look at Heather's uh, beginnings now. Heather was born in Seoul in Korea and lived for a time as a small child in Kingston, Jamaica. The family moved back to Australia around the time that Heather began school, and they lived in Camden. Heather also had an interesting job in her teens. She drove a truck called Mr Bunny? That's correct, yes. I had a, um, a holiday job of driving a Mr Bunny truck or Mr Whippy truck. Um, and um, it was interesting because being 
Jewish background, um, the, I've discovered that the ice cream is all pig fat, which didn't sit too well, and um, the green sleeve batteries would all wind down. And anyway, parents hate. I went through the caravan parks and things. Parents hated me because I worked their babies. Dogs loved me because they jumped through the van. Anyway, it was a nightmare, really. But um, yes, I did that. <laughs> what else would you do after that but become an actor? I mean, everything's got to be up, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so for more than four decades, Heather has been a vibrant presence on our stages and in films and TV shows, as well as, may I say, on radio with those golden vocal tones of hers. She's worked alongside some of the world's greatest actors, directors and writers, and has won awards both here and in the United States, including this last year, the Sydney Theatre Award for her performance as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But like Susie, whose career sort of could have gone one way or the other, Heather also could have taken another turn. You studied, didn't you, at the Sydney College of Arts before you actually went to NIDA. You could have been an artist. Oh, look, I could have been. Well, you are. <laughs> she is, in fact. She makes portraits on toast. I did You're portraits really on lucky toast. you might but no, be able I, to get your hands I did on. just do one year at um, Sydney College of the Arts, which was absolutely fantastic, but I, I didn't continue. Hmm. Well, the... the the thing about what makes us choose a path is really interesting, and I think we'll get to that with Ruth as well at some point. But anyway, nowadays, Heather is on the board of the Sydney Theatre Company and a director of their foundation board. She's an ambassador for the National Centre for Cancer Survivorship and was previously on the board of NIDA. In 2019, she was awarded an AM in the Australia Day Honours. She is currently streaming in season two of Love Me, where she lights up the screen every time the camera locates her. Now, we're just going to go back to Susie, who, while all that's been happening, while Heather's been on stages, she's been writing dozens of plays since leaving the law. You'd have to say that was a good choice. Her works have been produced around the world and won multiple prestigious awards. Among them, Orgies, the Griffin Awards, so many awards here, and most recently, her juggernaut, excoriating play, Prima Facie, won the Olivia Award. It's now playing to huge ovations on Broadway, and it will soon be made into a movie. Last year, two of Susie's plays were produced in Australia, in Melbourne, the drama Anna Kay at Malthouse, but here in Sydney we got, courtesy of the STC, RBG of many one. Interestingly, the very last page of Heather's beautiful memoir that has just been released finishes with words of Susie's from that play. Heather's memoir, which is called Anything and Nothing, is very much not what you might expect. It's not a collection of showbiz anecdotes. It's a compassionate look at what makes us most human through the lens of Heather's own life as girl, woman and mother. But it's rather lovely that it comes to that point at the end where she quotes from Susie's play. So that's a long way of explaining how we all come to be here tonight. There is a third guest, of course, the notorious RBG. But we'll get to her a little later, but there she is, Heather. You might like to have a look at who's looking down on you. <laughs> so that's Heather as her, because actually, it's kind of amazing. Could you tell who it was? <laughs> so you two are great friends, as well as being collaborators. Can you tell us a bit about where you first met? 
Sure. Um, Lucy Bell is a common friend of both of ours, an actress, a wonderful Sydney actress. And I was over at Lucy's place and Heather came by for a cup of tea and the next week we were already deciding to move your children to the same to school the same my school. children was at. Yeah. So it was a bit of an instant love affair, really. And we just laugh a lot together, which is, you know, the essence of great female friendship, really. So, yeah. But the key to, I think, our... Well, not the key to it, but Susie is a great connector of people. And one thing that Susie does when you um, first meet Susie, she says, okay, you need to get your children at this school, you need to do this, you need to do that. So I think it it was um, a very mutual connection, but it was also Susie was sort of there to take control and help me do things. So it was pretty amazing. Right, I didn't know yeah. that. <laughs> you did. I thought she was taking control and making me do things. And is that how it works in the rehearsal room or does, does the dynamic You know, the rehearsal room there? is completely different. You know, there's sort of set, there's set places where we sit because, of course, Heather's on stage, there's a director, there's myself as the writer and there's all the designers. So we sort of know our roles but... You know, there's a, there, because we know each other so well and, you know, the room was such a warm room and I think that was a really special rehearsal space, the one for RBG. Mm. Absolutely. I was actually wondering if you might describe each other as creative humans. What did I miss out from the introduction? What are the qualities that you see in each other as creators and collaborators? Do you want me to go first? <laughs> yes, you, and then I'll top you. <laughs> What I see in Heather is someone that everyone knows is this incredible giver of energy, of like really warm, soulful energy. She just gives of herself to so many people. And as a creative person, being able to give so much of herself to characters means she creates not just three-dimensional characters, but four-dimensional almost. But they just have an essence of the human being that she's playing layered within them. It's not just she takes on the role and performs, but she 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 inhales the person basically and becomes, I mean, I watched her become RBG. It was astonishing. Here's my friend with her Australian accent. Suddenly a, a moment later, she just completely became, and then I watched that character grow and grow. And, you know, there was a point where even just then when I saw the photograph, I thought, is that Heather or is that RBG? So she became, she, there was a time when I said, you are actually streaming her on stage. It's quite astonishing. And I think Heather does that with everything she plays. And everyone would agree with that too, actually. Thank you, Susie. Yeah, well, thank you. Okay, Susie. So, okay, well, I would say that as a friend, Susie is um, one of the most committed friends you can have. And she has many, many friends. Um, every one of us think we're the most special one, <laughs> but then we realise everyone feels that. So, um, but she's an incredibly committed friend. Um, and professionally, I mean, I've always uh, been amazed. Susie has written many, many plays. Like, we're, we're, it's in our consciousness now, the plays that Susie has written, because they've been very current and very present. But she's written many plays, and every one of her plays is very much about social justice, very, very much about affecting the community that we live in and the world that we live in, and I have so much admiration for her work. Um, I feel that within her work, there is such a humanity that she never addresses um, just a topic or a subject of interest that um, affects people on a very large scale, but very much of a very pure humanity and gets to the heart of a conflict and the psychology of it. And, um, and so as an actor, that is, it's been, this is the first work I've done with yeah, you. And so yeah. that's been just such a gift to do this particular show because of the detail 
that Susie em uh, embraces and puts into all her work. Um, and, um, and apart from that, we have a lot of fun. You know, <laughs> she's a lot of fun. Fun's <laughs> important though, isn't it? It's kind of the juice. I mean, if you're not having fun, it's hard, isn't it? But we also share, I think also, um, we, our parents have both been very important in our lives. And I think there's a real um, feeling of compassion between each other about family and parents. And our children have grown up alongside each other as well. So there's a, a real feeling of connection. Mm, yeah, Beautiful. Do you both have a process that you actually recognise when you're creating? I mean, and then we might even see what you've, how you work together. But I'm quite interested to know, do you have the same process, for instance, for every play, Susie, or does it vary? It's not identical, but there is certain bones that I recognise now, and it's taken me a while to recognise them. I think when you write your first play, people ask you, what's your process? And you kind of make it up because you don't know what it is. And, you know, it, it is an interesting thing. It's that idea of you don't want to dissect the frog in case you kill it kind of thing. Well, you will if you dissect it, I guess. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can see why she didn't just stick with science. Science, can't you? I mean, really. <laughs> but, I mean, I think now I realise that there are certain processes I go through. And first, the first one, of course, is recognising whether you respond to something powerfully enough that you want to spend part of your life with it. And for me, it has to have a kind of paradox or a knot at the sort of centre of it that you can't believe in both things at the same time or both things can't be operational at the same time. So you need to actually find a way to illustrate with characters and story what that paradox or that knot or that kind of human conundrum actually is. And, you know, they can be all sorts of things, and as they have been. But I, once I've found that, then I find the story that actually allows me to really illustrate that without talking about it, but just showing it. And then, of course, there are characters. And I just, I, I think for me, the character part is the easiest part. And so once I've got the story that I want to tell and I find my characters, then... I do a bit of research, obviously, when I have to, especially with RBG. I did two years of COVID with, you know, piles of cases. My husband hadn't seen anything like that since I was a lawyer. He's like, what are you doing? You're reading cases again. Um, but I think, you know, you do the research so that you've just got these little nuggets of gold throughout that you can draw upon, these really human moments in somebody's life. And then once you've got all that in place and you've summarised it over and over again, I think then you just find a quiet, dark corner somewhere and you just allow it to kind of come out really and I think that's that's the that's the moment where the actual creative energy is really flowing because all of that comes together and it is already created in your mind and you let it kind of bleed onto the page really. Seems to me one of the difficulties with the kind of work that you make quite often is taking something very complicated like the law or mm. you know I mean going right back even to your early works um, yeah. And having to, with all your legal knowledge, then to go, oh, now I have to make this accessible to people who know nothing. And I think that's actually terribly difficult to forget what you know. Do you know, it, it, it's a challenge because it's, I mean, especially when I write something legal, because I also am aware that knowing the law, there's a lot of legal people that are in the audience. And so I want to write the story that will be stimulating for them as well and not teaching them sort of basic stuff, but also making sure that someone that's not legally trained will really understand the, the actual essence of the story. And every now and then there's a little Easter egg in there for lawyers. <laughs> if it's a there's a little mention of something that they go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Or they, they, they recognise something someone that maybe other people got something in the story that other people don't see and have a bit of a laugh about it afterwards. But generally speaking, it, you know, it's just about making things make sense. And I think if you can strip things down to what their bare bones are, 
you can actually explain them. I mean, the interesting thing in Prima Facie is there's a line in the play where I explain what lawyers do. And my husband always reminds me that that's exactly how I explained to my children what I did when I was a lawyer. I'd say, you know, I tell the judge a story and then the other side tells the judge the story and then the judge talks to the jury and they decide which one they believe. It's as simple as that because it actually is as simple as that when you boil it down to it. And I think that, you know, and really that lawyers are just mouthpieces for a story. They're not actually taking a position as such, even though they look like they are because they have to passionately argue it. Having said that, that's just the legal framework. I love interrogating systems generally, whatever we take for granted and actually maybe, you know, taking that apart and figuring out where we might have developed it in a different way. Mm, terrific. Thank you. Heather, your process, because it's very different for an actor. Um, just let's talk about acting first before maybe collaborating on a, a script. Let's talk about your own work when you're given a script. Just a general one or yeah, RBG? Yeah, I think generally and yeah, then let's generally. look at RBG. I think mm. that um, I'd say all actors work very differently um, and that's what's really interesting working with other actors to see their process. I don't think I was at all aware that I had any process really until um, probably 10 years ago when you start to sort of be able to reflect and see patterns in your work. But for me, it's very much about, and, and I preface this with most of the work I do is scripted. Um, it's very different if it's improvised work, obviously. But for scripted work, um, and particularly, I'll talk about theatre, is different to doing film and television in some ways. But I, um, it's about excavation and exploration, basically. So you're sort of excavating. Firstly, my first question is always, what is, after I've, you know, read a script and First, and I think every actor goes to see how big their part is first. <laughs> you sort of go, oh, where am I? <laughs> oh, what, I die on page four? But then that can be a good thing sometimes because then they spend the rest of the time talking about you. So, you know, it's not about the size of the role. It's about how much people, the airtime you have. Yeah. So, you know, once you've sorted out how many pages you've got and then you kind of go back and read it properly. And the most important thing I think is that while I'm trying to read, I'm gleaning that first read is very important to me because I try to be really un, um, let my critical mind really try and put it away because it's amazing how easy it is for your own instincts to say why would they do that why would that happen why would they? it very criticism can come in very quickly so to really work at that um, and to get a feel my initial read is not even for story it's to get a feel of what the writer is trying to say to me and obviously, in something like RBG, it was um, very clear to me what the, what the writer was trying to say. But um, and so it's numerous reads, and eventually trying to d discern the difference of what is fact and what is yet to be known. So excavating really, what do I know to be true? What don't I know to be true? What is and what do I, the actor, know to be true? But then what does the character know to be true? What don't they know to be true? And then the development of character, and that will really. Um, there's a certain amount of academic things you can do, just sitting at the, with the script, going through, trying to work it out. But then it's not until you actually get on your feet that you discover, I'd say, at least more than 60% of it, if not more. And many, and it's about not making decisions. And that's easy to say because we're constantly trying to make decisions all the time. Our brains want to make decisions about things. But it's controlling that part of yourself and trying to keep your um, perception and perspective open, particularly, uh, and RBG is a different case because it was a monodrama, as Susie <laughs> yeah. calls it, but usually you're working with other people. So then through the rehearsal process, 
it's not just about what is my character doing, but how is my character, most of it is how is my character reacting towards the other characters, what they're wanting, what they're needing, and how we're relating. So my process, I suppose to answer your question, is it feels like it's getting clearer to me what my process is, but most of my professional life has been playing around with the process, really, trying to see what works and what doesn't work and, and how things fit. And with every job, depending on who's in that room with you, so much of it is the collaboration. So depending on who's in that room with you, who the director is, um, time constraints, um, you know, how that room operates dictates an enormous amount of how you do approach your process. Having seen, as I'm sure many people have, a lot of your work over the years, it seems to me you have accessible to you in a way that lots of people don't, a kind of a direct connection to your childhood because you channel children or, you know, very beautifully. Very and immature. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just, I'm just wondering though, you know, I mean, having read the memoir too, you know, that feels very alive in your body, even RBG, you know, switching between the ages. You would have seen this, Susie, in the rehearsal room, I'm sure. For both of you, do you feel like you can draw on different ages quite easily? Yeah. I mean, do you access... I think, yeah, I, I have a really good memory for my childhood, strangely, but for most aspects, aspects of my life, which is kind of a burden. <laughs> because, you know, I say to someone, remember your 21st? You wore those really amazing red shoes and they're going... Where was my 21st? <laughs> so I have like lots of, you know, detritus of memory that no one else, it's useless to everyone else, useless to me because no one else remembers it. But, um, but I, I do, you know, I do have strong memories of just those different phases of childhood. But I always remember seeing Heather in Cloud Nine, which is a Carol Churchill play that was on at SDC and she played, I think, was it a nine-year-old boy? And I just went, oh, wow, I'm going to find a role for her somewhere where she can play a young, very young person as well as an older person. I don't think it's unusual, though, for actors to... Because I think play happens when we're children and it's as we get older, we're sort of less encouraged to play. So I think that it's... And I think many actors get the desire to, to act or to be an actor or at least to continue that in some area um, due to enjoyment of playing, the enjoyment of you know, dressing up or playing different characters and playing shops and libraries and all those different things. So I don't think it's that unusual to, you know... You, do to you did totally transform into a nine-year-old boy. That was amazing to well, me. Well, yeah. it was... Um, so let's talk about Ruth, anyway, um, who's really the third party in your room. Um, perhaps... Does, I mean, can there be anyone here who needs to hear anything about Ruth? I tell you what, let's do a potted biography and ask the two of you to tell us the things that you most uh, remember about her life story, just off the top of your head, the things that affected you the most. I mean, we all know she was a judge, but let's, let's do it that way rather than okay. me reading off a pile of... Well, things that really affected me most. Um, I feel like I can still hear Ruth, Ruth's voice. Um, every day almost. The things that really affected me was her, firstly, her, her legacy is very much what we know about what she did in the courts. But I think even before that, before she was in the courts, she was, as an individual, as a woman, she was already, due to her upbringing with her mother and her father and the society she lived in, being Jewish in New York with a father whose business wasn't doing brilliantly, a mother who was a, was, um, really encouraged her to be independent, to you know, contain her, any outrage, 
that she was so influenced by her mother in particular. Mm. And what really struck me about her was she was such a formed individual before she even got to the courts. And that's the part of her that we, we remember so well. But I, I feel that she was already practicing so many things for women in particular before she even had that, um, that, that avenue to be able to speak out. But the things, I think it's her, what I so admired also about her, apart from her fight and her, um, her vision and her attention to detail, was her, her manner, that she was a great listener and that she didn't yell, she didn't um, demand. She had great attention to that detail, to humanity, to affecting the community. And I mean, there are so many quotes of hers that are so admirable, but you know, the one, if you wanna make a difference, it's, it's not only you know yourself, but know how you can affect your community. And if you want to lead and take people with you, do it in a manner which will take people with you rather than telling people what to do. So, I mean, I constantly hear in my, it's sort of her mother's voice really saying, step by step, take your time, don't invest in outrage. And the word invest to me is really important when it comes to Ruth because investment implies we hope there'll be a great outcome, you know, because we want to put more things and we invest in them and we invest in them. And the idea of not investing in outrage just really means something to me through Ruth. Which is so, ironic, given so that a lot of Trump her... was her sort of mm. end point, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But also as a woman in the Times, she was not only, you know, she was breaking the mould of a whole lot of things. As she was, you know, had two children, she, or she had a young child while her husband uh, was dying of, at the time, it appeared that he was dying of cancer. She was doing, back then there were, you had to go to the library to read books. You didn't have it, you couldn't Google it. So she was probably doing what, 40 hours a week at the library reading. But anyway, I won't go on. She was amazing. And um, <laughs> Susie. Well, I'd like to ask Susie, in terms of her legal mind, I mean, I've got this picture now of you sitting with, you know, all these books through COVID. Yeah, I really what, did. What was it like to go into that legal mind? Look, what I loved is that she had a ferocious intellect, but she also was 10 steps ahead of everybody else. She was years, light years ahead of her time. And I think she knew it and I think it was a frustration that she couldn't hurry up to get to the point where she could say certain things and they were just a matter of fact, whereas she had to convince people that women were equal to men. She had to convince people that, you know, that racism was wrong, whereas, you know, she, she wanted to live in the world where that was already a given and then she could create further from there. So I think she had that wonderful capacity to know what she knew and recognise that she had to start from a place that the times that she lived in could actually understand and build incrementally, bit by bit. And there's a lot of patience in doing that. And there's also a lot of methodology that goes into doing that. And I, I was really admirable of someone that could have this vision and could step by step by step just like go toward that light of that vision of what she could saw that the community could be. But also I think there are a couple of other things. One is that she was ambitious. And I think, you know, she's a really great template for all of us because women are often 
ambitious women are often thought of in a negative sphere in the community and it's wrong. I mean, women should be able to be ambitious and be the best they can be at what they do without it being something that's seen as a drawback or something that defines their personality in some way. So I thought that was a great template for her. And also I think she just had a great humour about her. And people, you know, because she was quite quiet and she wasn't overly demonstrative, people are not as aware of that humour, but it comes out in so many, even in her judgments occasionally. And I think the last thing that I was very drawn to with her was her incredible depth of love of opera and just the arts. She, she really understood them on a visceral level. And she sought them out as places of solace and places of learning. And I think that, you know, that, that whole kind of very multifaceted human being that also mothered, that also cared for sick people, that also, you know, sat up to all hours of the night to make sure her judgments were just right. I think that there's just something really extraordinary about that. And I wanted to really dig in and see where the vulnerabilities were. And of course, there were vulnerabilities. And finding those were moments that gave me great pause, actually, to realise that she was a fully fledged human being. She wasn't just an iconic figure. Um, so, taking all of that into account, what was the impetus then? To, I mean, after Prima Facie, one of the things that it seems to me, and you mentioning music makes me think of it. Prima Facie had a kind of, I mean, I used the word juggernaut at the beginning, but it had this kind of roaring energy. And one of the things that's beautiful about RBG is it's like you trust silence so much in that script. And I didn't see Anna Kay. I don't know if where that fits in that, but it, they seem such sort of not opposites, but they seem to be coming from a different place. So where was the impetus for RBG? Did you come to Heather and talk about it initially or was it drifting around for you for a while? It was drifting around for me for a while, but particularly given the decision that she made not to resign. And I really wanted to interrogate that and also, I guess, give her a defence to that. And also, in retrospect, look at recognising that maybe there were some parts of her that didn't look at it as entirely as she could have. Having said that, I really admired her commitment to the separation of powers, which is, you know, the fact that government and judges are separate and the, the courts and the government should never tell each other what to do because they're looking after different elements of the kind of, you know, the world, basically. So that, you know, the governments are looking to the next term, whereas I think one of the lines that I wrote in the play, not to quote myself, but is that <laughs> judges are writing letters to people that are yet to be born. So they're actually writing letters. So she knew that she had an immortality in her judgments because someone one day would read them that understood how she thought and that day has not come yet but you know that she she envisaged a day when there would be a woman who was the uh, president of the United States she thought it was going to be sooner than it was and she was writing for that day because she knew that if she did really good dissents and gave roadmaps for how you can change the law that all they would have to do is read those dissents and they would have a roadmap for legislation change but you can't tell a government to do it and the government in turn can't tell a judge what they should do either and there was just that that you know that little knot of the thought that Obama was telling her to resign and she was choosing not to and you know from one perspective you think why did she not she could have made had such an effect and then on the other hand you think I know why she didn't and it was really important that she didn't shake those pillars of democracy because actually they got so shaken in the years to follow with Trump that they're lucky they didn't collapse entirely so um, you know the idea of that separation so I really you know I was thinking about it a lot and I thought I'd love to write the story of this 
woman and how she got to that point where she was so excited about what was possible. But, you know, like and someone was saying to her, actually, everything could go backwards unless you resign. And being in that decision-making mode, so I sort of played around with what that conversation with Obama was like in my head for many, for many months during COVID. And, um, and of course, you know, coupled with having Heather in my life, who was the perfect casting. And in fact, when I pitched it to SDC, I said, it comes with Heather or I don't want to write it. Oh, <laughs> so, I was going to ask you about yeah. that. Because I, I have to say, I don't look at Heather and see RBG. I mean, this yeah. You know, there she is. There she is. But it's obviously. I mean, you're only looking at, a, but you're only looking at IBG as the older version. I am. Yeah. So true, I saw actually. the whole life of her. Yeah, and I yeah. saw Heather being able to enlighten and ignite so many parts of this really vibrant woman, and this very elementally kind of thoughtful, sort of humanita- you know, humanitarian. Really, it's interesting you reference that scene about Obama because for me, in a way, that scene is one of I don't know but it's certainly one of the most thrilling scenes I think in the play and it's where for me it's where both the writing and the performance seem to hit this high wire point it just holds so beautifully when when, when Susie sent me the initial draft yeah and um, I was backstage I'll never forget reading it and that was the they were the scenes that just leapt out at me and I rang her and said, oh, those Obama scenes just yeah. had me shivering. <laughs> it was fun to write. But they were the <laughs> hardest ones to learn. Yeah, they, they were, were really hard to learn. It was really interesting. A writer never knows what's hard to learn. They think the whole thing's hard to learn because I could never learn things that I've written. Even to this day, I have seen Prima Facie so many times. I've seen RBG so many times. I couldn't tell you what the first paragraph was. <laughs> so I don't know how actors do it. I don't know how they go home and they learn those lines and they'll probably still remember them in a year's time or bits and pieces of them. And I wrote them and I don't remember them. So it's... You know, so much for my great memory, hey? <laughs> well, I mean, you did write something that required an extraordinary degree of acting fitness, it has to be said. I Absolutely. mean, the accents, the changes in age, the changes in backwards and forwards. Might we bring up the photo of fitness if you've got it there? Um, <laughs> um, what, was, what did you do, Heather? When, I mean, you said you, got, you were sent the script. Were you much involved... <laughs> Along the way, absolutely in the writing. At, no, <laughs> not the in the writing. No, no but God, but no. in terms of drafting and stuff. <laughs> no, did you, no, no, no. Susie, well, did no. Oh no! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! <laughs> no. So we would do online reads because you know we couldn't do them in person, and you know that really helped because I had the voice, the, the rhythm in my in my mind of what I thought it was, and then you hear an actor read it, and there's some little nuance changes and differences, and they also ask great questions. Like a really thoughtful actor asks questions about their characters that makes you go. Oh, yeah, I haven't got that across yet. That's really important. So, and Heather's just such an experienced actor and such a, you know, like such a thoughtful actor that she asked fantastic questions. I remember the day when we did a read um, <laughs> for the STC and oh, yeah. and it was a lot of it, you hadn't yet made it that she was actually playing the other characters. Oh, and, then, <laughs> and then you swapped it. Like within a couple of days, you rewrote it the scenes, some scenes where she was telling it in like third person and then that she was actually oh, playing right, those yeah. characters, which yeah. was an, a huge change. <laughs> that was a change. shocking change, wasn't it, for you? <laughs> like, oh, no, I have to play all the characters, yeah. You always were going to, I think, the first draft. I just had to lay it out. hadn't told you yet that you play 30 <laughs> characters. <laughs> so how, what was your 
preparation like? How long did you work with, say, a voice coach? I mean, oh, I had a brilliant voice coach, um, Jennifer White, uh, extraordinary. It was a, it was a very, look people who don't know it was a really intense and wonderful time. It, the timing was interesting because I was um, we were to start rehearsals earlier in the year, and the SDC were about to print their programs for the year. And I um, found a lump in my breast and I'd had a reoccurrence of breast cancer. And that was in January last year. So I rang Susie, I rang Kip, and they were literally about to print the um, program. And I said, please, 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 you have to, you have to. I didn't ask. I said, you have to um, <laughs> change the dates. And um, amazingly, they did. And another job I was doing. So anyway, there was a shuffle of big shuffle of dates. So rehearsals then, and our wonderful director, Priscilla Jackman, was pregnant, um, and originally her birth date for the baby was worked in perfectly for the show to be on and running, and then she'd have her baby, but with the change of dates, her baby was due the week before we opened. <laughs> so perfect. It, we rehearsed for four weeks, and then I flew to Melbourne, and Susie was there, but then Susie had to fly to where were you? Went to London. I remember. Susie yeah, went yeah, to, London. To, to London. That's no, you right, went to Melbourne yeah. to open Anna Kay. Then you flew to, to London. Yeah. And was sending some rewrites and things. And then I flew to Melbourne, did three intensive weeks on Love Me, and then flew back. We had four more days in the rehearsal room, <laughs> and um, Priscilla was in the baby. hospital giving birth. <laughs> and. Um, and Sharon Millerchip, brilliant Sharon Millerchip, who is our assistant director, yes. she got COVID. And so she was in bed really sick. So we had TV screens. Everywhere. And um, she, they were both Zooming me and I was alone in a room with the stage manager, Katie Hankins. So I was overseas. And we were right. just Gosh. doing it. It was great. <laughs> so it was really fun. But, you know, the funny story about Priscilla is, though, she had her baby and the whole time she kept saying, well, I've booked in for a Caesar on this date, so I'll be back for tech the day after. Oh. And Heather and I kept saying... <laughs> She's oh, got darling, no you idea. don't know. We said, you've we got, got you've no got idea. idea. And she was back. She was. She came back <laughs> with a baby. We're like, okay, we just gave her all yeah. these warnings. And we, she was like no. super mum. She, she arrived was, with the She baby. was breastfeeding, giving me notes from <laughs> Zooming. She was amazing. It was, so it was, and you know what? That was Ruth Bader Ginsburg too. That totally, was just like we all totally. just went, oh, if Ruth can do it, we can do it. So it was, um, we did have Ruth's voice with us the whole we time. Did. We kept quoting her. So it was exciting. <laughs> Ruth would say this. Or Ruth would yeah. <laughs> so it was the most unusual rehearsal process. Mm. And, um, but, you know, right up until the previews, I didn't know, I was not word perfect at the previews. And Sharon Millership sat in the front row with an iPad and was, the great thing about when you're doing a show where you can speak to the audience, if you forget your lines or if you get lost, you can just sort of say, oh, excuse me, could you help me? And just ask someone for a line or have an excuse. But it's much harder when you're in a drama where there's a fourth wall. And there were very to... few lines so, that she didn't remember, let me so, tell you. It was astonishing. <laughs> and do accents come easily to you? Because the switches are so fast in some of them. And I'm just curious to know, you know, are you oral? Because you're obviously no. very visual, so... No, not fantastically, no. So that's where Jennifer White was amazing. And because I was so focused on Ruth and we only had, you know, a limited time, I, Jennifer was incredible. So we'd Zoom, because it was still COVID times and so we weren't in the same room. But Jennifer would Zoom and she was so brilliant. She'd say things like, okay, you know... She'd give me great tips about Clinton and great tips about, you know, where their voice was coming from and... And I love the bluster. Could stats. you give us the bluster? Well, oh, not now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Sorry, you know, I, I just I wouldn't uh, ask you to do bits. No, no I love uh, it when she does it. I make her do it at dinner parties. 
it's just that, you know, he has this, uh, you know, with um, Clinton, he's on the porch with his whiskey. And he's just sort of back there like that, you know. But she gave me great sort of physicality, you know. So, oh, no. <laughs> but, you know, it's just... And then... Um, so it was, she was wonderful. She was absolutely wonderful because I'd have an intense sort of hour with her and then go back to RBG. So it's, um, it's really just, you know, mind yeah, games. Yeah, just that. Just that. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you talked about all the other collaborators. Did much change in the rehearsal room or was the script that we saw pretty much what you delivered to the beginning of rehearsal? It was a bit longer, wasn't it? We had, it was what, running think, two hours. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that I, I wrote it as the same length as Prima Facie, but of course I forgot that actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a much older woman towards the end of her life. So she spoke more slowly. And also the American, American way of speaking is not as clipped and fast as the way Australians or British people speak. So I went, oh, that's right. She's going to be 88 at some point and she speaks more slowly. So it was interesting and we sort of like cut quite a lot back. So there are lots of little gems that got taken out. It'll be in RBG part two or something. <laughs> <laughs> the offcuts. <laughs> I'm sort of interested. I mean, this is a, there's a bit of a mini phenomenon that we've watched in the last few years with Prima Facie, RBG, Julia to a degree, although there, there is another actor on stage in Julia, even with perhaps not, not so much with Dorian Gray. But these plays that are addressing the experience of women in power or trying to hold on to power. It's interesting to me that men have been taken away from the stage for those, you know. That, and I've been thinking, have we yet reached a point where a woman can hold the space and tell her story in the presence of male characters? Because in your memoir too, you talk at one point about a lot of your career being spent, you know, kind of being second to the male actor. And I've just thought about that and thought how wonderful it's been, how thrilling it's been to hear these female voices alone on a stage. And it's a kind of a shamanic, priestly, somethingly, goddessly thing. You know what I mean? I mean what do you think I mean, what do you think about that? I just feel like it's something that we haven't seen much before. Oh, you're looking oh, at well, me. I'm looking at the <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I think I mean for me it was about showing how like, well, actually also, particularly with RBG, it was about having this magnificent actor and I wanted her to absolutely just be in her complete power and own the stage and just be, you know, one of those glorious actors that we sort of think of when we think of sort of huge stars of the past. And I thought, Heather is Australia's one... I think she's Australia's most magnificent actress and I wanted just to really celebrate that. And I think because she bonded so closely with Ruth Bader Ginsburg... It just, she just electrified her performance and there was no one to play second fiddle and she could play all the characters, so why cast somebody else with her? She played off herself even, didn't you? At one stage you told me that you were waiting for the other actor to speak and you realised it was you. <laughs> I was doing a scene with Obama, not Obama, with Clinton and I said my line and he didn't say his and I thought, oh, come on. <laughs> and then I went, oh, fuck, it's me. <laughs> To that point, too, I think that, um, yes, I found as a young actress um, in Australia, because that's my, where I've worked, um, both in film and in theatre, that, um, you know, most of our stories have been driven by male characters and it's been a lot of male stories and most of the women, the scripts I used to get years ago would say, mother, 
grandmother. <laughs> Wife. You know, they didn't even have yeah. names, a lot of them. And that's not true of, of, of course, that's a, a one um, situation really. But it certainly in my experience, there of course have been great roles for women. Um, but in my experience, um, it's only just now as I'm getting older that I'm, what I'm delighting in is seeing other women of my age and older, we're embracing the idea that life doesn't end at 50 or 60 and that women's lives in particular, thank goodness, are not held on a pedestal, which was actually a prison, but uh, actually have rich and wonderful lives. So that to me is what's really important in all this is that we kind of... That's a much better answer. <laughs> yeah. So I just, that's, and of course I think the men in there too. I'm not yeah. saying it's, it's... And I think we've just had this time of, you know, there was Virginia Woolf, there was Julie, as you say, Dorian Gray. We've had this wonderful... It's been wonderful, all these stories about women played by women. But I think that certainly it's... We don't want that just to continue. We want that to be there too. But we want there to be full, whole stories for all people, you know. But they can be running parallel. They don't have to be... But it has been thrilling to watch, I have to say. <laughs> um, I've got to throw questions open to you now. It's not fair that I get to have all the fun. Um, Susie, you spoke about your process being working out the, the knot or conundrum of the particular place, but what was the knot or conundrum for RBG? Oh, well, for me it was whether she... Whether she um, well, there were two things. First of all, why did she not resign? And the people were in two camps about that. And I thought it was part of her greater story as to why she chose not to. But there was also another little sneaky thing in RBG that I was trying to do, and that was to, like, evolve the character of Marty, her husband, this very, very successful lawyer who was her, her partner in life. And, he, and, you know, there was one little scene where she talks about running into somebody else from the law school that she went to who was carrying a baby in a baby's bottle and she was on her way to court with a brief. And really what it was was templating this magnificent man who didn't just say he believed in equality, but he actually lived like a life in the domestic sphere, like really taking on at least half, if not more, of the sort of responsibilities for children. And he did all the cooking because she was a really bad cook as well. <laughs> but not just because of that. I think he actually just... And also he put her forward for the judgeship in the very beginning and for the, and for the Supreme Court because he believed she was the best candidate when he was approached. And, you know, they were saying, who should we approach and are you interested? And he said, you should be talking to my wife. And I think... The really funny thing that happened over Christmas after the show was on is that uh, we went away for, with some friends for Christmas and one of them was a female judge and her husband, who was is a solicitor, and he said, the great thing about seeing your place is he's a really funny guy, actually. He's a, really, he's a real laugh. But he said, is that all the women came out crying and going, oh, that was amazing about Heather, you know, Heather and RBG. And he said, all the men came out going, I think I'm a Marty. <laughs> <laughs> because I was there with my wife and I was watching this play and, you know, I, I could... And I think that, you know, it was... And that, that really made me laugh because I thought they did come out looking quite chuffed after the show. <laughs> yeah. oh. You actually have a Marty, don't you, of your own? <laughs> yeah, you The idea that starting from this position we can take an Australian production anywhere in the world... Is that something that's important to us or is it, yeah, chime in both of you on, on the, the origin and the universality of it. Yeah, I mean, I think with Prima Facie, which was the first one out of the two, um, 
I never expected it to go overseas, actually. In fact, when I wrote it, I thought it's a one-woman show about rape. I can't imagine it's going to go on, for starters. And then I thought, maybe my friend's daughter, who's a young actress, might do it at the old fits or something for me if she's interested. And so I, it just felt like the sort of topic that would find a very difficult to find an audience and because they weren't classically put on and it's no it, it's no coincidence I don't think that the artistic director that programmed it was actually a woman who read the play and thought this really should be on and that was at the Griffin which I love the Griffin it's a writer's theatre that is just astonishing it's the best writer's theatre in the world and I've been to a few now and really the sort of support they give writers is akin to nothing and it was really just that tiny little theatre in King's Cross that said let's take a risk and try and put this play on and that really is how it reached a global audience but it's had some amazing effects overseas. Now all the judges in the UK have to watch a filmed version of the play uh, before they can sit on the bench just so they understand and I thought wow. No, <laughs> it is amazing. I mean, it's amazing to me because it's no longer my piece of work. I feel like it's been flung out to the world and see what happens. So in a way, I love that concept that you can write something from a tiny corner in Australia and it can reach so many other people. And with Ruth, it was so much less about her being American than it was about her being this icon of a woman that I just admired as a young lawyer and had read so much about her before I even started researching her. And I guess also looking to my great mate, Heather, and thinking, gee, we can work on something together. That would be really great fun. I didn't really write it with a view to overseas. But, of course, it is a story that resonates with lots of people. So, um, you know, there was, what, there was some critique about saying, why was it not an Australian woman that I researched? And I think because Ruth was my absolute icon at law school and beyond. So I really wanted to dig into that story. And... I think Australians have incredible talent in this country, but less opportunity because there's just not as big as big audiences for theatre as there are in other countries. But we have an abundance of talent. And in fact, recently I've just flown back the other day from Los Angeles where someone there said to me that your country punches well above its weight in terms of talent. So I think we need to believe in the talent of our people because it's it's really here and they're real. I mean, it's if you can make it in Australia, I think you could make it anywhere in the world, to be honest, because it is hard to make it here. So I think that we've got to start believing in that rather than waiting until someone gets success overseas before we start really thinking, oh, they're talented because they were talented before they left. And, you know, it is a hard country to sort of rise to the top without people, a bit of that tall poppy syndrome. I think we have to really actively work against that because Australians are, you know, members of a global community. They can do whatever they want and we have such great people in this country that can go forth and do that if we don't hold them back to do it here, to take it elsewhere, to come back, to bring other people with them, to do whatever we can do. Mm, wonderful. Susie, why did you become a playwright rather than a novelist or a biographer and what is it about storytelling through plays that resonates with you? I think I just love dialogue. I love reading dialogue, I love writing dialogue, I love hearing dialogue. I also think that there's something about theatre to me 
that there's something about and it's happening right now is people sitting shoulder to shoulder assembling as a group of human people breathing in the same air and experiencing the same what I call emotional mist at the same time and I think you know we learned through COVID that that's something that's irreplaceable you, you know you can't put pause on this or maybe some of the people at home can but, um, but you can't hit pause and go and get a coffee or have some you know have a breather you have to experience it in the in the system that you're experiencing it in and you're actually experiencing it with people that you might not even know and usually you don't and how often have you been in the theatre and had an amazing experience where you turn to the person sitting next to you that you know you've been next to each other that whole time and thought oh, that was amazing and it's there's something about I mean it's age old I guess theatre in that regard but there's something about human beings being together that's bigger than just the story being told it's about the receiving of that story as well and I really lean into that very strongly. Are there any specific um, authors that you take inspiration from writing style, plot-wise, character-wise, um, not specifically just Ruth Bader Ginsburg, obviously, because she was a real person, but definitely in Prima Facie, how you created that character and what authors you took inspiration from? Oh, my goodness, I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I take inspiration from other other books or reading, but I do take it... I do take it just from, I think, just having the empathy to experience a human being. And I think that's probably what the arts is all about, is being empathetic enough that you can actually imagine yourself in their situation and wonder what, what you might do, what choices you might make. And then if you get to know the person well enough through researching them, or even if, even if you create the character, you put them in situations that make it hard for them to negotiate. Hence the Obama seat forever. <laughs> but, um. So how did you spend the time to understand the cultural and environmental influences so you could make something authentic? Um, I don't know if I can answer in terms of the cultural so much, but more in terms of um, the human aspects of it because, I mean, leading from what's... Well, culturally, I suppose I have some... I'm American and... Australian. My father was American. I have uh, my ancestors were all from Nantucket. And so I have connections with America. So I feel like that for me, that's sitting in there. Um, but I feel that in terms of the creative process, for me, even the question before that um, Ruth asked is, you know, feelings, it comes down to me to feelings and feelings are universal. So if I mean, anger is anger, regardless of what it's directed towards. Um, pleasure is pleasure. And so it's, 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 I suppose it's connecting the feelings with the thoughts, with the, with the uh, situations, with the intentions and all those things, which to speak universally. And um, of course, we know now that because of appropriation and things that there are certain lines which we do not cross. Um, uh, and there's many discussions about that and some people feel very strongly one way or the other, but that's where respect comes and respect for different cultures and the respect that if one cultural um, uh, people feel that you must respect and not portray their story, then must listen to that completely, I think. But I think in terms of the American culture, I personally have... A connection to it. I felt a very strong connection to Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself. Um, my mother died on my last exams at school and so did her mother. I'm married to a Marty, uh, brought up in a Jewish family. 
I only discovered today that her, I mean, I knew that her younger sister had died at a very young age, but didn't realise it was meningitis. My son had meningitis. She had cancer many times I have. So I felt like um, I felt qualified, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Whereas in some roles, don't feel so qualified and wonder and have to question then whether I have the right to tell that story. So in a way, maybe your question to do with the right to tell a story um, a cultural story or a person's story, and I think that's something we all have to question all the time, really. I think it is interesting as well when you talk about American culture. Like what I notice in Britain, which is astonishing to me because I just never occurred to me until I was living there, is that Australia grew up with a lot of BBC and a lot of commercial American television. So when I'm in, when I'm in London and I go, oh, Marsha, 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 they go, Marsha who? What are you talking about? <laughs> Or if I go, oh, my God, it's so Gilligan, Gilligan's Island. Well, that's Thurston Howe Third, And they're like, who? What do you... So you realise that Australians have actually grown up with so much American popular culture that even more so that, you know, we're so much further away than London is to New York. And yet we had so much of it on our television, which was our main form of entertainment growing up. And... I just thought, wow, I just know a lot of... And so when I was in America recently, you know, I would tell them that and they'd go, what, you mean there's a country that doesn't know about the Brady Bunch? And I went, <laughs> I feel so qualified because I do. But, you know, American culture has really permeated so much of Australian culture. But also as a lawyer and as a human, I have watched on American politics and really delved deeply into it. My husband's obsessed with American politics, so we do talk about it a lot at home. And, um, and you know, like I guess they are a massive, massive influence on the world. So we all can interrogate parts of it because it has an influence on us as well. Oh, look, we've got oh. a question that's come from the State Ooh. Library of WA. Thanks, Heather. Oh, oh, and they're asking, will Heather Mitchell as RBG come to WA? Um, there's discussions afoot. <laughs> <laughs> Good I hope I'm she's hope, coming I back to so. Sydney too. I hope so. Um, when you uh, started to say what President Clinton said over the phone, I could have sworn I was listening to a tape <laughs> of President Clinton's voice. I mean, how long did you have to practice to get that uh, invitation correct. <laughs> uh, oh, thank you. Hello. Nice to see you. Um, oh, look, as I say, I had the wonderful voice coach and um, the good thing is that I was able to record the, the, the lines that I had to say. I'd record onto my phone and was able to just, as I went for a walk every day, I'd just listen to them and refresh my memory of them. It's interesting doing a long run of a play, how you, you lose your way sometimes. Like you can actually, things which were actually working really well at the beginning of the run, can other things take precedence and, you know, so I, constant reminding really. You have to keep reminding yourself. But um, thank but you. She was listening to Clinton on loop for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm. I want to thank you all for coming out on a very, very chilly mm. um, Friday night. Um, and just to spring this on Heather, I just thought I wasn't going to do this, but I think because I said at the beginning, you know, this book, this beautiful memoir ends with Susie's beautiful words. Would you just read the little, From just the little, the oh. little ending bit? I hope when my time comes, I will echo Susie Miller's words at the culmination of RBG. My heart soars and I breathe in this world one more time, infused with a merging a oneness with everything and nothing. The end, nothing is not Susie Miller's. That's <laughs>
Please join me in thanking these two exceptional humans. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.